Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello. and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 139. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. Together we present this podcast and we also run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mysteries. Suspense. Thrillers. And crime. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we are delighted to be joined by a wonderful author this week. Oh, yes. Uh it's interesting, is it? We don't deliberately set out to talk about subjects um, c- concurrently, is that the word? <laughs> Relevant to each other. But last week we spoke to Mark Whiteman about his book Chasing a Dragon, which we published this week, and we'll talk about that a bit more later. But this week we talked to another writer of historical crime, well, not crime fiction exactly, but historical fiction, Stacey Thomas, who's the author of The Revels. The Revels, yes, came out in July, uh, published by HQ. And it's set in 1645, which, uh, for keen historians, you'll know it's the English Civil War. It's the time of witch finding and witch trials and various other things. And it's all conflating together in her wonderful book. So we'll talk to Stacey a little later. Now, normally we would plunge straight into publishing news and all that malarkey. But we didn't feel it was appropriate this week. No, actually, we don't know what's happened in the publishing world this week. No, we've kind of... Turned our hands against it. Uh, And there is a reason for this. And this is going to be a difficult and potentially... I don't know if you're going to be off-put by what we're going to talk about in this next section of the podcast. But it's very personal. It's very painful. And I wanted to share it. We've been debating whether this was the appropriate thing to do. But this week has been very, very tough um, for me personally, and indeed for Rebecca and and other people around us, um, and I'm still conflicted as I start talking about what's happened this week, and I feel very difficult. But it's a very personal thing. So, look, if if you are a sensitive nature, or if you if you're not feeling that listening to something that um, of about mental health is not for you this week, then just skip on to the interview or join us again next week (laughs) for episode number 140. Um, But I I have been debating whether how candid to be about events of this week and for right or wrong, we're going to be candid. Yeah, because that's what we are and that's what we do. Yeah. So we're not going to change that aspect of the podcast. No. Okay, well, what are we talking about? Um, You'll be talking obliquely. I'll, I'll, I'll be very specific about it. Earlier this week, and I, this is not to say anything critical about the people I engage with, but I went for a job. Yes. And we alluded to that last week. In the yeah. Podcast, okay, we? I'll spell it out. I went for, to be, uh, for a job as a part-time bookseller at a, a branch of a successful company um, in Shropshire. Uh, they're opening a new 
branch and they're a fantastic company and we'd love to get them on the podcast very very soon um and it was the first job interview that i've actually done for ages i mean years (laughs) yeah several years and it wasn't easy you know i'm 53 now and um i'm sure a lot of people of similar ages will, will, will understand what it's like you know the skills and, and experiences that you bring into the workplace are difficult to codify when you've done things like the BBC for as long as you have. And in many ways, it was kind of like a an, opp- an opportunity. It was a great opportunity because they're a wonderful book um, store and a great team, and I really admire them. But the thing is, it's going back to retail. The sort of jobs I was doing when I was a student. Yeah, so a very long time ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, uh, and, uh, even at the age of 16, working at Marks & Spencer in menswear and things like that. I think we've heard some of the stories. Well, you have, you have, <laughs> over, the, over, the, over the weeks. So, um, you know, applying for that wasn't easy. But the fact is that I need a separate income to... Well, we're not getting one from Hobeck. And we've made that clear over the last umpteen shows probably since the beginning when we started this podcast of course over two years ago we were optimistic that by the time we were sitting here now in september of 2023 we'd be turning a profit and we never have and we've invested well i've invested everything that i got from a divorce settlement and a large um uh, you know and, and not massive but a significant inheritance has gone into this business and you've put in tons of money too from your divorce settlement but also in the fact that we've not taken wages that counts as a direct loan yeah and it builds and, and builds every month freelance income has gone directly here to yes Hobeck, not to and mine. indeed all of the narration money pretty much i've earned has gone in to the business and we're still not there and the fact is that i cannot keep going personally with the demands i have you know i have two sons to consider uh another commitments and i can't meet them without an income and it's just got to that point so i was looking for work and i wasn't successful unfortunately but i mean that's not to say that uh there won't be opportunities going forward because i do have a skill set that might be appropriate for for other things connected to this company so um we're not saying you know not ruling it out but it came as a blow on thursday when i didn't get the job and to be honest, that financial pressure has been building and building and building and adding to the issues that I've already expressed on this podcast. I have various aspects of my, uh, how do you put it? I mean, makeup, you know, the way I am, the yeah. person I am, um, you know, ever since I was a child, I'm, you know, I'm on the spectrum quite where I sit on the spectrum I don't know and your own little spot I think yes okay and attention deficit order disorder has always been there but it's finally being diagnosed but not treated realistically because I've, I've had no actual treatment support for it and there's various other things going on there health wise I mean physical health issues as well but the bottom line is that Thursday was difficult so can I can I just add, add a slight um, point of my perspective here so Thursday mm. morning um, I had in my head a whole agenda of things I needed to do. Very busy week. Yeah, you've been incredibly um, busy, yeah. I got back from the school run and I had to phone... I um, I was helping a friend of mine publish her book 
and we'd agreed, pre-agreed, I'd phone at nine o'clock in the morning on the dot and help her upload her book to KDP. And I ran into the house and you gave me the news about the, mm-hmm. uh, the job. And I just said, I'm really sorry, I've just got to help my mm-hmm. friend do this thing. And that was a, a bit more of a of the catalyst to what was going to happen after that, wasn't it? Because I yeah. couldn't give you the attention you needed at that particular moment. That's quite right, yeah. I mean, it, it didn't help. It meant I was stewing and hanging. And, yeah. um, you know, in itself it wasn't enough. And then quite well-meaning, you came in and said something to me about, well, at least there's a half a possibility yeah. of, of, a, of something else. We don't need to go into details, but it was, no, we won't a, go into details. A, there was a possible opportunity, but we weren't sure it was going to work out. So we hadn't pursued it beyond it being an opportunity. Anyway, and I mentioned sa- it. I just mentioned you, it. When you said that, that was it. I flipped. And I packed I packed uh, stuff for, you know, wash kit, spare clothes, my CPAP mask for my sleep apnea and I stormed out and I was going to up to Manchester anyway to see my boys but I went off grid and I left a message on Facebook which many which people I didn't, didn't see t- no you didn't see it but see I also want to I want to add here that you've done this a few times I do I do this so- I, I blow up and this is the nature of the of my mental health is that I can be you know, ticking along fine, and then something will trigger me, and I'll have a blow up, and it's like crying wolf almost. It's awful, but this is the way that I my brain just goes to overload and I explode. But I know now that when that happens, the strategy for me, the best strategy for me and for you, is to let you blow, yeah, and let you go. And so I didn't. I knew what you were doing, and I just sat in the in the dining mm. room, kitchen even, and let you do it because I know that's the best thing to do. So you packed a bag. You grabbed a couple of things in the kitchen and you left. And I took my medical pills, <laughs> yes. which included paracetamol. <laughs> anyway, that's part of the story in a second. So I drove off and I was going to Manchester anyway. Um, but I left a message saying, I'm 53, uh, over and out or something like that. Anyway, my sister, Rachel, very kindly, she'll be listening to this, very instantly understood what was going on. So did she see the Facebook message? I yes. didn't know that. Yes, I think so. And she so phoned, I didn't see it. So and I she phoned no me idea. to say, where are you? And I was in tears by this point. I'd completely broken down. And I had I had four paracetamol. I took the four paracetamol, was off to go and find more. And she said, right, where are you? What have you done? Have you taken... And I said, well, I've taken some pills. And, and at that point, I switched the phone off and cut left her high and dry and it was an awful moment but I just couldn't express I just wanted to go <sighs> I wanted that... to drop out and just you know that it was that bad I was suicidal and I it, I've go I go that to that place I have been there since I've known you particularly around events at the BBC and there have been other triggers it's never far away for me because I suffer from de- depression and anxiety that's never leaved. So what happened next? Your sister panicked, yes. obviously. and she, she phoned the police. She phoned the police and then she phoned me. I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't look at Facebook. I had no idea. I thought you were just cooling down somewhere and you were going to return. Mm. 
Like you, what? That's what mm. normally happens—a normal pattern. So then there was me and your sister both in panic mode, yep. thinking you were driving up the M6 after having taken pills. So I thought you were going to crash the car. No, I, I'd parked the car. <laughs> I'd left it in a car park I don't usually use in Stafford and then walked to the station and got on the train. And I was just bits. I was crying on the train. I must have looked to right state. And I was intermittently switching my phone on and off. And Rachel was trying to call. No, I was I, trying to call you. You were trying you to call. Answering. I was not answering. <laughs> and I eventually started sending messages. By which point, you know, I arrive in Manchester at midday and I start walking. I talk to you. And unbeknownst to me, there's a manhunt going on for me. Yeah, so Rachel, <laughs> very wisely, and, she, you know, this is, she did the exact right thing because we didn't have enough information to go on. So we were assuming more you know we were assuming it was the worst, more serious yeah. Yeah. because you have to so yes and the, and the police i mean you can talk about it from your perspective I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute yeah. yeah so from her perspective and mine as well through her it sounds so ridiculous because if you think about it, this has all happened in the space of about three hours yeah it's so quick but that i was so determined at that f- flashpoint to do something neg- you know drastic Cry for help, final because I've been battling this whole situation in my head. You know, you it's very hard to express. I mean, you know, you carry it around with you, it creeps back in, smashes you in the head when you know that fear of financial difficulties and all the things that go with it, and the grief and the regret and the guilt both my family and the Hobeck family and the you know you and just everyone around us that essentially you know I said uh, there is an element of feeling like a failure because there were many people telling me to stay in my job at the BBC regardless how crap it was and how difficult it was to exist there because I owed it to everybody to still be earning and all those sort of things but no I thought well you know we'll set up Hobeck and I'll show people and we haven't and it hasn't worked yet to this point. So there was a lot of that swirling around, you know, feeling of kind of male guilt about being a failure and not being able to support the people I love in the way that I should and that I'm relying on them now and all those sort of things swirling around. But anyway, going back to the specific events, we talked and I said at the end of that 25-minute conversation as I walked across Manchester with sound of trams rattling past <laughs> and sirens and all sorts of things and the bustle well, I, of the When city. I heard the siren, I thought, oh, they found him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you said you must contact the police and let them know. Now, ironically, I was in St. Peter's Square and there were two mounted officers <laughs> and I tried to approach them, but actually they were having publicity photographs <laughs> taken. There was a proper photographer and everything and I would have interrupted it. So I backed out and I said, look, I'm going to ring off now. I'm going to go to the Central Library, which is an amazing building. I love it. Recently revamped um, and they have an amazing local history section. So I walked in there and I had this idea from many, many, you know, three, four years ago, I thought of a story stranded a series that i could write the crime series set in in 19th century manchester and there were all the resources that i needed in front of me and it all came back to me thinking yes i should do this story and it was weird to have this little flash of something to look forward to and something to do in amongst all these things where it's all hopeless and i want to give up 
And then at my, that point, my son phoned and said, right, Dad, uh, I'm waiting in the... It was in Square, not far from where, where I was, um, waiting. To, we were going to have lunch. And this lunch has been hanging over me because I haven't seen my boys for the best part of... Well, certainly not the older one for three weeks uh, because I can't afford to put money in the in the car to go and see him. Or, uh, but on this occasion, I just thought, you know what, uh, you know, if this is my last day, then I ought to have a nice lunch with them, and that'll be it. There's logic in that. There's weirdness. I mean, <laughs> you know, none of this makes sense. It, it's irrational. If you're sitting there thinking, "Oh, what an idiot," yeah, I feel like one. But at the same time, these feelings have their own logic and their own set of actions that go with that logic. It's warped. It's wrong. It's my mind tripping me up, but it lies there all the time and it feels like the only thing to do at the time and you know it's not an easy thing to do so anyway uh, I met my boys and I explained what had happened and my situation and they took it differently my younger boy James who I'm very close to just sat there his face very red and fighting back the tears and Ben was much more he 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 he'd be quite brusque at times, but this time he was empathetic and he was steadfast and understanding. And then the bizarre thing was, at this point, I'm starting to have to take phone calls from from Greenwich to Manchester Police and Staffordshire Police and all this sort of thing. And I spoke to a call handler at Greater Manchester Police who was very who was absolutely I don't know her name, but I wanted to credit her with just being brilliant at handling my situation and my state of mind it was incredible um i was visited by two officers while i was in manchester as well i spoke to staffordshire police and reassured them i was all right and that you know my boys were going to accompany back to the train station and put me back on a train to stafford and all that sort of thing so full credit to them and to my sister rachel and her steadfastness and you of course but, um, and to the many people who messaged me wishing me happy birthday because the the misinterpretation of Facebook, which was quite ironic. It but, was, it, and it, eventually I decided, look, I'm just going to be honest to people who've asked what's, you know, this is what I meant and this is what's happened today. So many of you listening to this may have seen those messages. And in fact, you sent me happy birthday message, which was lovely, but it's in June. So <laughs> just to clarify that. Oh, you'd be like the queen then. But it's weird. I mean, you know, I was on a, a recovering from that darkness very quickly because of all this support and whatever. But when I got back here, I still felt I was up and down, very up and down, very difficult to, you know, I was loving and attentive one minute and the next minute withdrawn and, and angry, you know, oscillating between yeah. the two. And that I mean, we, we did fall out again. Yes, we did <laughs> over dinner, and well, yeah, because I refused to come and eat with the, with the family because I wanted to be alone. And then yesterday, we're talking about this is we're recording this on a Saturday just to put this in context. So we're talking about events that happened two days ago, uh, as we speak. And then uh, yesterday, I was up and down. I felt exhausted. The emotional turmoil of those days of the day previous had just taken its toll and a, a sense of feeling up and down but you know 
people have rallied around us. But this is very difficult to talk about. I mean, you know, I'm just sort of rambling in a way because I'm still trying to get to terms with how did I get to a position like this? And I know how I got to a position like this because it lies within me and it doesn't go away. I've felt like this on a number of occasions. Probably the first time was when I was about 40. And... I uh, thought you had an episode when you were a child. You told me about Yes. That. Oh, yes. Well, that's slightly different. I mean, I was quite very young. Um, it's different, but I think it's related. Yeah, I don't know if I want to go there, really. Well, no, you don't have to go there, but I'm just saying... Your, your point is that it's it's deeply entrenched in in your makeup. Of who yes, you are. yes, yes. I mean, they're, they're, you know, but in terms of being an adult and feeling t- so desperate that I wanted out was about forty. I was actually I was just about to turn forty, and the reason I didn't do it then was because I got a message through the grapevine that someone I was at school with had done exactly what I was thinking of doing, and it shocked me. And so I didn't. And the, the person in question had been head of school, had an amazing career laid out for them, had been the president of the Oxford Union um, a couple of years after Boris, <laughs> um, had a political career that would have taken him into the cabinet, no question about it, laid out ahead of him, and things just unraveled. Mm. And he was very, very bright, incredibly bright, and just had everything going for him. And it, you know... And he got to this point. And, you know, I'm afraid it's rather prevalent in, 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 in men. It's the number one killer of, of middle-aged men in the country, uh, taking their own lives. And um, part of the problem is that being a bloke of a certain age and whatever else comes with it and uh, expectations of how, you know, you should behave and what you should achieve and things like that and those things I can't match at the moment uh, for various reasons and but deep within me is this conflict of being on the spectrum but at the same time um, when people meet me they most of the time they think I must be very very confident and very extrovert and I'm not and it's a it's it's a performance and it's one that I've adopted and managed to it's taken me to places where internally I wasn't ready to be being a broadcaster is a really weird thing I mean you know I would love doing the job when I was doing it but all the politics behind the scenes I couldn't abide so for instance I was given an opportunity that I didn't take up because I didn't have the confidence to go and pursue it so uh, I'm not saying I'd still be doing it now but when I was 31, I got a chance to go to the African Cup of Nations. And when I came back, I had letters, I had messages from the head of Radio Sports saying how brilliant I'd been and did I want to come and see him about being a commentator on Five Live as for football. And for some reason, I didn't have the chutzpah to do it. What was I thinking? It's haunted me all my life. That's exactly what the job I wanted. But I didn't have the self-confidence from the introversion and the other things that hold me back. And so life with me is bumpy internally and externally. And for you, you're amazing. Rachel was amazing and is amazing. Rachel's your sister. My sister. Yeah. And indeed, I have many, you know, amazing people around me. And 
um, but this is something that is has impact on on the business and part of me last night was I almost said to you I'm afraid you're gonna to have to present the podcast solo this week because I can't talk about this that's how I felt yeah so I'm here talking about it and this will go out raw as it is yeah we didn't plan what we we're gonna say in fact we just sat down and said no let's just do it <laughs> so I don't know what to conclude from it I wanted to share because I know there are people people out there feeling the same way and what was impressed upon me was don't get to that point where you start, you know, doing the grand gestures and stupid things. You know, as the police said to me, if ever I feel like this again, to phone them and they can get support in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> here's the irony is what I didn't experience. So all this is going on. I'm with my boys and I had a visit from two coppers and which was bizarre and you know it felt like a out-of-body experience in many ways and then my son reveals ben this is who's just graduated from loughborough that he's put in for a job as a police core handler for <laughs> great know. manchester police i know it's brilliant <laughs> and i was thinking judging by the way that he handled that lunchtime meeting on the day that i didn't take an overdose strictly speaking but i started to take one should we put it that way he was brilliant, and he'd be very, very good at it. And I think he'd find it very fulfilling. And part of the, you know, and I felt so proud as a father and also so awful as a father. Um, but I, I think that, that, so that when you told you came home, you told me that, I felt that sort of joy at that news. And yeah. I thought, you wouldn't have heard that news, would you? So there you go. Those things, you, the, those moments, this little... They're only little things in a way, but important for you. Yes, yes. I mean, he, you know, it's been one of those nagging worries is that, you know, he's come out with this great degree and, and he hasn't got a direction yet, but that might just be the way forward. But for you're him. actually making an interesting point here. You probably don't realise it, but you were talking about expectations put on people. Mm. Now, Ben is responsible as you're responsible for your own, mm. what you do nobody's expectations on you it doesn't matter so ben had to find his own way find what he wanted to exactly do. exactly and it doesn't matter whether you're worried about him or thinking no, oh you know he's got this fantastic degree because he needed to do that for himself and he's yeah. done it yeah and in a way that's what i'm trying to find i mean you know i need to find the next way forward now hobex it's it's still it's still going it's not thriving, but it's still going. Yeah, and absolutely, it's it's. You and know. we've written, and you very, you know, you wrote a brilliant email today, which will be marmite to some, and and others have been rallying around us. But you know, to the authors to explain the situation, and to to, and we said we would be explaining more on the podcast about exactly what happened this week. Yeah, I just wanted to put the week in context. Yes. Because I think I, I get the impression they've probably been waiting for us to explain it, things. Yeah, to them. because I mean, there's been lots of hints and mm. and stuff in the in the thing, and and you know, the news about Red Dog Press was very very um, close to home for us. And you know, there have been discussions. I mean, only a few weeks ago, we said, Look, you know, is this worth it? You know, this is killing us, and uh, on so many levels. Yeah, I mean, and I'm... it really did. Uh, <laughs> in my in, in my case, but you know, it's just one part of the mix. It, I, I'm not portioning blame no not at all no, no not, it, not at all it's it, not about that it, it was like dominoes not is it dominoes? It, yes. well <laughs> it, i think it was he was it who said um that you know 
going bankrupt, so to speak, is a very slow process until it's very quick. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's you know, true. And, 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 and uh, it was a famous writer, I think. Um, and that's how it's felt for me, you know, it's gradual erosion. And to be honest, I'd put too much stall in it, you know, a part-time job in a in a wonderful bookseller isn't going to be enough to save the situation, but it felt like a, taking it just to just to put myself in that position of, of applying felt like it was, and you know and everything from that experience was positive apart from the outcome. You know, I still want to uh, to have a relationship with these guys because they're amazing, and and we still will, and you still will. Yeah, yeah. But it's quite what's been difficult is finding the motivation. And I know this is true for the authors too because, you know, um, sales haven't been as strong as any of us would want. Um, and it's quite hard to write a book thinking, you know, it's not going to lean anywhere. And, um, and you know, it's difficult to publish a book when you think it's just yeah, it's, it's going to cost more than it's going to make, and um, which is the, the nature of it. Um, and so let's not beat around the bush about these things we've talked in code and whatever on, on the podcast because there's many people out there who think you know you should just stay positive and say positive things and good things will happen well that doesn't necessarily work and actually in the week and I, I i i don't want to conflate this at all but i just wanted to we 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 need to mention that someone that was interested in joining hobeck passed away this week Someone we, we we had a conversation with a very in, interesting and fantastic author and, and and a wonderful man, and you know that puts what I went through in some context. Um, yeah, it happened a couple of days before, didn't it? It's so. Mark Richards um, who 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 was looking for a publisher, and we spoke at great length and and in great detail about the possibility of him joining us. And we actually, we said to him, we think you'd be better off publishing yourself. And he did. Because he He, had been, hadn't he? But he he got lots of ideas and plans on how to do it. So we said to him, we love your work. I read his first book. I loved it. But we said, in all honesty, you're doing a fantastic job. Keep doing what you're doing. So that was a shock. And I know it's affected quite a number of people that we know uh, but obviously his family first and foremost and our thoughts are with them with you know with them and it's a tragic tragic week but um you know it all puts things in perspective but the fact is that you know we are fighting each week each day to keep the thing going and we are you are successfully exploring the freelance world yet further you've already had a well established but you've added further strings I've, I've been very lucky i've been very fortunate through connections i've there's two more regular clients i've got mm. at the moment and i love working for both of them if they're listening i don't know but honestly i absolutely love my work at the moment no it's fantastic and i'm thrilled for you in contrast, there am I sort of battling just to find anything. And but I've been there. I have yeah, been I, there. No, I know. So I know. It's just this, it's, it's, it's really a snapshot. hard. It's, it's a snapshot at the moment. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things going on, which I need to address because I'm still here. I'm breathing and I'm presenting this podcast this week as I will next week. And I wanted to be as candid and honest about it. Because there's no point couching things in different terms. I know it's uncomfortable for people. And for those of you who've listened on and listened to this, I hope with empathy and understanding. But if not, don't worry. The fact you've listened is enough. 
um, you know, I'll fight back from here. We'll fight back together with the support of uh, people around us who've been amazing. But sometimes, you know, because of the nature of life and everyone else's lives, it takes something like this for people to sit up and take notice and realise what's going on. And you can... And in a way, we've talked in code um, to, you know, each day. And there is this thing of, well, let's not dwell on the problems. Let's just look forward to the future. But actually, you do need to deal with the problems sometimes. But the, but the reason we don't like to do that is because it's difficult. I, I'm gu as guilty of that as anyone. I am an eternal optimist. And so and I've reflected back on the last few weeks months of mm. conversations or, or things you've said to me in passing as you pottering around the kitchen and it and I've thought you know that was a big thing he said and then you potter off and do something else and I'm or I'm working I'm like mm. oh yeah okay mm. and it's it's hard isn't it to to confront these things yeah well look I mean we need to confront this and we're doing this on the podcast in terms of the future of the company we're confronting a lot of things there too and we need to rethink everything. Yeah, we've got uh, we've we've pulled together the team, and we we've got lots of ideas of things we can do and we can try. So the, the, we, you it, know, there is optimism. There is. I mean, we need to be better at certain things, and we need to do less of. And I was watching um, the uh, program Tom Carriage has been presenting on the BBC about the secret life of you know hospitality or whatever, lifting the veil on on what it's like to run restaurants and and work in hospitality and hotels and things like that, and the, the true reality. And what was so telling this week in his penultimate episode of the of the series was that he himself has just remortgaged his house to follow a dream to open a place in Chelsea, um, another branch of a particular brand of his. Uh, you know, he has seven different catering and hospitality businesses, and this is one of them, and he wants to open a branch in Chelsea. But he's remortgaged his entire house and his family's future to pursue this dream and um they hit a roadblock which was they, th they had a design and a plan to install a certain look to this it's completely at the moment it's just a shell very elegant shell but it's a shell <laughs> and it was twice their quote came back twice more than they expected yeah and so. all the things they were having to cut but also thinking that where else did they get the finance Cash from flow. And cash flow and gross margin and things like that. And I think that it's very easy to forget that it's affordable to sell books dirt cheap as e-books if they shift in thousands. But if you if you can't engineer that whichever way it takes um, and all the different methods needed, then it doesn't work. And it's not, you know, it's not a value proposition, really. There's no margin in it because of the cost of advertising. So there's all sorts of things to think about, but we're re re rethinking. But at the moment, then the, 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 the number one priority is to get me back on my feet, really. But one thing your sister said to me, which I, I'd like to sort of be my last word on this subject is, she said, you have a very successful business and don't forget that. Okay, not financially at the moment, but it's a very successful business. There's a lot more to a business than just the bottom line, although that is crucial. <laughs> it is crucial. It is crucial. I'm not yeah. going to deny that's not crucial yeah. because it is crucial because it does break businesses. However, 
we have done a lot of good so far and we will continue to do so yeah yeah perhaps not as fast as we hoped but speed's not the most important thing i would say success in a year's time is that hobeck's still going and in in you know well, no matter what and what it's whatever it's taken to, to achieve that yeah you know let's let's be realistic about that so uh thank you for listening to this element of the show we ought to get to our interview we ought to really yes. perhaps you say a few more words to introduce our guest yeah, so this week we talked to uh, Stacey Thomas, um, who she's had a debut author, came out in July. It's called The Revels, and it's a historical fiction. So, uh, Stacey approached us to come on the podcast. Um, it was during my New Year's Eve call-out last year. So we were thrilled to have somebody who's not a you know in that crime thriller mm. uh, bracket. And, but it, the parallels with what Mark was telling us last week were fascinating as well. So she goes into a lot of depth about um, her process of research, the things that she learnt while she was writing, and also why she wrote this book, how she came to be writing this particular book. So it's a fascinating interview. It's well worth a listen. Stacey Thomas. It's a real joy to be joined by Stacey Thomas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's a real pleasure. And and um, congratulations on the publication of The Revels, your first novel, uh, not so long ago. Um, so how's it been? It's been good. It's like, it's just been such a whirlwind because obviously when I got my publishing deal last year, I was kind of like, oh God, like July, like the 20th of July, 2023, it's going to be such a long way. And I just felt like in those kind of last few months, time just really sped like like really quickly to the point where I was kind of like oh god I just want to freeze time and just enjoy kind of being like a soon-to-be published author but publication day was amazing and it's like I felt like on publication day like I could kind of finally just breathe and like just celebrate the fact that you know I fulfilled a dream of having my book published and um and then you know and like just enjoy that moment so it's been good I feel like I'm a lot more like relaxed now now that you know I've kind of gone through the whole process do you go into bookshops and just sort of feel your book and have that feeling of you know oh that's mine I actually I've been into um into a couple because where I live I'm lucky that there are like two kind of local bookshops so it's like on publication day I went into them like they had copies of my books I was able to sign it and so whenever I'm like out I always kind of pop into the bookstores and like if there's a copy there I'm kind of like oh can I sign it and it's like it's sort of that thing. It's like I have my like signing pen in my purse. So it's like, oh, don't worry, I've got a pen already. <laughs> yeah, I love that you have a signing pen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the future, when you're when you're mega famous, that could go auction for millions. That pen. Oh my god! Yeah, I remember like um, my sister. Like um, I think oh god, I can't remember what book it was. It was one like childhood book, and like we had like we had so many books that basically our wardrobe like the top part of our wardrobe was just filled with them because we didn't have any more space in our bookshelves and she'll say okay we need to like go through all the childhood classics and check which ones are first editions and it's like and if they're signed then it's like we can go to auction with them and it's kind of like I don't think there are any like first editions left and I think they're going to be quite like you know dogged because of how they've been stored but yeah I, I think like... I did the same thing actually. <laughs> so I don't know why I thought they'd be first editions. So. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's always just that secret wish that you know a book could just be worth like you know thousands. Like so, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so gathering from that, I mean, 
yourself and your sister shared a passion for books from from an early age yes so basically we always loved like you know reading so it's like I just remembered like when our mum would take us to the dentist as a treat we would be able to go to the library afterwards so it was that thing like we were just like really kind of bookish um and then I like I was always kind of making up stories when I was a child and it's like I did kind of creative writing courses at like university but I think it was only when I I felt like when I was kind of studying at university I kind of like struggled to kind of find my voice or I guess like the right story and so it was only a few years later that I kind of like got back into it and like lockdown just gave me time to kind of like really kind of work on my craft and like just find the story that I wanted to tell. Yeah, and that's a theme that's emerging from a lot of our interviews, actually, that lockdown was was difficult for in many reasons, but it, boy, is it unleashed a world of creativity yeah. amongst people. And lots of things, yeah. not just writing mm. and art and music and all sorts of areas, isn't it? Because you had the space, the headspace to do something creative and, and actually the time yeah. to do it. Yeah, and I think it's just that thing. It's like there were just no kind of distractions because I just remember saying to a friend, like, all of the TV shows are ending and it's like that just felt like you know stage two of the apocalypse because it's like what what is next like it's it's over and it's like I think for me it's like you know as hard as writing can be like I just love like the kind of creativity of like kind of like creating my own world so like that was just like it was a nice way to just kind of distract myself well it's been very productive and and very successful um picked up by hq which is brilliant and your cover uh, yeah we both said this when we look when we looked up the book oh what a gorgeous cover i think that's my favorite i've seen all year yeah oh my god thank you all the credit has to go to um andrew davies the um cover designer like he's just amazing and then also my editor she was like I just remembered when we were talking about covers, she just said, "Oh, like my idea is to have like a mouse with like a little ruff because a mouse has a cameo appearance in the book." So she had a really kind of clear idea as to the concept, and it was like, and she was just completely on the ball with it. So yeah, uh, it was a case of like the editor with the right idea and like the designer who could just really bring it to life. So I'm really grateful to them both. Now you pick. Don't get to the cat. No. <laughs> Well, the cat. Oh, we, we also mentioned. You've just eaten a butterfly while we've been talking. Yes. Oh wow! <laughs> this is day two uh, for for listeners to last week's show. They would have heard Aki attacking the butterfly for the first time. The um, butterfly survived miraculously, but hasn't quite been so lucky this time. So, so. She, she's Ooh. lying there washing her paws in that sort of. <laughs> I've just conquered. <laughs> <laughs> And so we we get up close and personal with half-eaten mice on a regular basis here. So um, there's the mouse on the cover. Yeah, you're right. We can't show it to the cat. <laughs> now you've picked a really interesting period of uh, to set your book, um, but I want to be interested in you know. So it's, it, we're talking about 1645, civil war, and an enormous upheaval in terms of uh, religion across England and superstition and all sorts of things mixing together what was your initial interest was it the period or was it the the prominence of the occult and witch hunting and all those sort of things that went on in that period oh everything yeah I feel like it was everything but like originally like I was interested in the witch trials and it's actually funny because when I first started like I was kind of drawn between setting it in the period of like you know King James or like the civil war and I feel like 
obviously with King James, like he was kind of the original witch hunter. So it's like he really promoted those witch hunts, especially like in Scotland as well. And then it's like he took all that history and like it already exists in England, but it's like he really kind of ramped it up. But I feel like for me, when I was just writing the story, I wanted to set it in the Civil War because as I just researched the period, you could just see like people were very unsettled by what was going on. Society was kind of breaking down. And so as a writer, like it made sense to set it the story in that period because it's that thing when you're just reading about the witch hunts it just seems so incredulous that people would allow this to happen and so when you have the civil war it's like well of course this was going on and people were turning a blind eye because the country's tearing itself apart people are frightened so it's that thing it's like people are just becoming a lot more selfish in terms of just you know ignoring what's going on and I feel that with the civil war like personally it's quite interesting because it's like there's this whole kind of you know class divide but then there's also this scramble for power as well and so that was like I thought was really interesting because a lot of my characters they're kind of motivated by kind of you know power like you know either wanting more of it um or because they're greedy or because you know they're powerless and they want to protect themselves and the civil war with that instability it kind of gave them the opportunity to feel like this is this is my moment I have to kind of be ruthless if I want to get what I want so that was quite interesting for me to explore absolutely but uh, what a, a massive amount of research to do yeah uh, no. you know, because it was yeah I mean you know it's it's a period of, it's an interesting thing with the English civil war it's one of those periods of history certainly when I was a kid um we didn't touch it no, I, we didn't either yeah. at school. No, it's you know we we happily talked about the Stuarts, we talked about the, the Tudors, um, and we did you know other periods, medieval history. We would do things that you know French Revolution, Bismarck, Second World War, that kind of stuff, but you'd never talked about the Civil War, and it was almost like it just there's happened. A, there's it's... a collective amnesia, yeah. I think, but also an embarrassment that it ever happened that we you know that given that we're living in a monarchy now re-established after the Civil War and after Cromwell's um, control of the country as the um, Lord Protector, um, we kind of have just swept it under the carpet. Do you, do you think that's a fair description? I feel like in a way it is fair because, um, like, obviously my book, it's just set in 1645, so it doesn't yeah. kind of touch upon, like, all of the Cromwell, although it is something I'd be interested in if I ever wrote a sequel to The Rebels, kind of setting it during the interregnum period, because I just find it so fascinating, especially the lead up to the restoration period. But I think it is just that thing, it's like, you just, I don't know, it just seems like in some ways it's just dismissed as this failed experiment even though, you know, Oliver Cromwell was a very successful leader and when he was in control of, you know, government, he did an actual really good job. And I believe there's one author who wrote a fictional account called The Puritan Princess, which is all about his daughters. And it's that thing, it's like Cromwell was the uncrowned king, but it's like his daughters were basically princesses. But I don't know, I think maybe, like, people is kind of just, embarrassed about it so it's that thing Cromwell is just kind of you know pushed like pushed into the background and I guess they like to just pretend oh yes you know we've always had a monarchy and we've always been very stable you know unlike the French you know that kind of thing and it's like that wasn't the case. Uh, That's true and I think there's also an element isn't there that you know given what was going on certainly when we were growing up in Northern Ireland um, anything 
Well, we were growing up in Northern Ireland. No, we were not growing up <laughs> in Northern Ireland, but when we were growing up in there Northern was, Ireland, there was a comma, sorry. There was a comma. <laughs> you know, sectarian troubles and indeed yes. um, issues on the streets of Glasgow and all that sort of thing, and in other cities as well, where there was still this sectarian legacy, uh, largely through what Cromwell did, um, and then subsequently yeah. William of Orange. But, you know, we didn't want to point out religious divides between Catholics and Protestants in that period. It just wasn't yes. something that was 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 counterproductive, should we put it that way? Yeah, no, I could see why, like, that would be a sensitive issue. Like, in my book, like, obviously I mentioned the religious divides and there was one scene which it's like, it really pained me, but I had to cut where it was basically this um, Irish soldier who was been injured during the war, so in the court he's busy petitioning to get maintenance it's like I really wanted to kind of touch upon that like anti-Irish um you know sentiment as well because people I think with King Charles from what I remember from my research he actually kind of got like Irish soldiers and and it's like and he also had Scottish soldiers and the English they were not happy they felt like they were being invaded and it was so sort of just that thing it's like the country wasn't like united and I feel like with the Civil War, when I was just researching it, it's that thing, it's sometimes it's hard to pin down like why this all like happened because it's just such a big subject. And I just remembered like when I was writing my book, I really kind of struggled because like it felt like I had to find a reason to explain why the war happened. And I realized like, you know, even now historians are still debating over it. So that like took the pressure off. But you just realize like just all these kind of, you know, divisions, you know, kind of like that were kind of like going around at the time like religion you know people's like different nationalities it it's just yeah it's just kind of very chaotic it really is and as you say difficult to research and 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 nail down really And, and in some ways I guess that's not as important as the fact that you can go into the sort of social detail and and recreate the world of 1645 so where what were your sources for that um, aspect of, of the novel um so basically when it came to recreating the world I read like a lot of like um you know biographies by Antonia Frazier because she like kind of wrote a lot about women in that period so it's like I really kind of lent upon like her books for the period details and then when it came to the kind of like you know kind of witch history and then the kind of you know social broader kind of social context and Malcolm Gaskell, who I think is like the godfather of those kind of witch books because he's written like so many and they're just really like detailed. And then I would also look at like portraits as well. So um, and just read um, like costume design books to kind of understand what people wore, the materials, the jewellery as well. So that was just really helpful to kind of kind of bring the world to life in a way. And then I also read kind of books set in the period as well to kind of give an insight into the language but again it was really useful for the period details too yeah and that's something that hillary mantel did so well wasn't it with with wolf hall and oh yeah the the, the importance of fabric under the fingers very important aren't they because Mm. i think most people have an idea of the sort of clothing and the sort of jewelry that people wore but to to actually get that detail i think is very important because you then you know you do get a feel more for the for the normal normal lives of these people, so not just the historic events and the, and the sort of macro stuff you were talking about, but the you know what it's like to get up in in the morning, what they did and what they had for breakfast, well, it, what they it, did. It, yeah. it echoes just what I was writing actually, because I'm I'm writing a book at the moment and it's set in oh, 1940, okay. and oh, okay. um, 
And I was looking, I was just, it was a very casual piece of research, which is terrible, really. But I was trying to find a design make that uh, one of the characters might be wearing, you know. So um, La Chasse was the uh, oh, right. the designer by to read my grandparents love letters at some point oh right okay i've got this detail like my my granddad saying he had tin tomatoes for breakfast while he was he was you know On in front. europe yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's but it's those little things isn't it and, and i suppose that is the enjoyable part of research so as well as the sort of historical the heavy stuff but you've got the, the you can get lost in you know go down yes. the rabbit hole yeah. and... <laughs> like i definitely like I feel I feel like I went so deep I definitely had to kind of draw myself back because it's that thing when you're just researching the past like it's so easy to just keep going mm. deeper and deeper and then it's that thing it's like I'm sure like you come across it like even when you're like researching a certain period it's sort of that thing well it's kind of like you know when we're alive today like you know yes it's 2023 but like I feel like people are constantly looking back you know a few years ago or even 10 years ago and you know with your parents as well they're part of that other generation so that was something I had to keep in mind so even when I was just writing the rebels I was also looking at like Shakespeare's time as well because it's that thing it's like you know my character is like was born after Shakespeare but it's like you know there's still that literary like you know memory as well like that his parents would have too so yeah that's actually I've yeah. never heard of people doing that before but I, I quite like that because you, you would be influenced by the near history yeah. yes like, oh, yeah. so we we were both born in this uh we use a 70 1970 and that was 71 yeah. so the second world war loomed massively still in our childhood because our grandparents yes. and our parents had lived through i mean my mum was only little my dad was only little but they had memories of it and so although we didn't experience it it was a big oh huge yeah huge. Was, yeah i hadn't thought of that no, and yeah. I think it's interesting because we'll, we'll focus now on the characters in your book. So we're talking about Nicholas Pierce, um, who is a playwright. Now, yes. that's not that's not a that's a difficult vocation in sixteen forty five, and in fact, yeah. it's it's not an easy thing to be throughout the seventeenth century. Let's be honest, because you're, yes. you're putting yourself in the frame for uh, well forces you can't control. Uh, there's plenty of people, you know ready to sense i mean you know i suppose that at that time it would have been what the lord of the rolls or whatever his name was the um, um master, master of the of, yeah master oh master of rebels like if you wanted to perform your plays before the court i see well, okay because right. yeah he was like responsible for like censoring it if he didn't approve Absolutely. making you change bits as well so he's got that calling but he's also an apprentice to a former witch finder, which I find fascinating. We're talking yes. about uh, Judge William Percival. Mm-hmm. Now, was yes. William Percival a real character or is it based on a real character? Um, so William Percival wasn't a real character, but it's like I kind of was inspired by, when I first started writing, I was very much inspired by Matthew Hopkins, the witch finder general, who was yes. obviously just notorious for killing hundreds of like witches. Yeah. But then as I develop the character it's like I have a real kind of villainous protagonist who's more kind of directly based on Matthew Hopkins but it's sort of that being all of my witch all of my witch hunters are kind of inspired by Matthew Hopkins like legacy and then also the other like real life witch hunters too yeah I know Matthew Hopkins is fascinating but I, I, I'm, I'm, I've always cast my mind back to the um, the witch finder general hammer horror film which, oh my uh, god I saw that as well that was like 
God, it was so I loved it, but it was like it was so creepy. And it's, it's like I'll never creepy. forget a bit. Yeah, like when he obviously like he kind of swum the woman, like you know, like yes. did the swimming, and then it's like obviously, you know, she she died and he kind of just had this bit where he sighed and he seemed really regretful and he just said she was innocent and it's sort of that thing, it's like he's not taking any responsibility for the no. fact he's killed an innocent woman and you just realise this man is absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a product of its time though, isn't it? Vincent Price playing the witch finder general Matthew Hopkins and uh, Ian Ogilvy, I think, is the hero, who is yes. a roundhead officer who charges back to his village and finds the witchfinder general terrorizing uh, the love of his life and yes. father and, and all um, that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then it's like, um, yeah, the love of his life and like her like uncle as well, who I think was like a like a reverend or something. Yes, because, that's right. Yeah, he's a, he's yeah. the village priest, isn't he? And he's yeah. and subjected to looking for marks on the body and all that yeah. stuff. And uh, it's it's horrific. Um, well, it's a Hammer horror film, so what do you expect? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's very very dark, but um, it, it is extraordinary that this whole culture that developed and just how entrenched it became. I think in many ways, it feels to me like it was almost used as an excuse. If something went wrong in your village or in your community, it must have been witchcraft. That was kind of the attitude. Does that does that chime with what you've learned and what you wrote, perhaps? Yes, I mean, like, I read, like, real-life um, witch transcripts, and it's like, and it's like in my book as well, I kind of just, you know, kind of draw upon the fact like, you know, a lot of people would make like if when everyone was happy and times were good, you wouldn't have these accusations. So it's only when things are going wrong that you have people accusing each other. And it could just be from genuine fear or, you know, paranoia. And I I remember in one of Ma- um, Malcolm Gaskell's books. He mentions that during the Civil War, there was this couple and they were cobblers, but then it's that being the walls made them impoverished. And it's kind of like the neighbours have started to turn against them because it's that fact is in towns, you resented the poor because they're reliant on parish relief. I guess in a way, like with some people who are relying on benefits, it's that whole yeah. culture of like, oh, you know, if they're on benefits, they're lazy, not that. Well, actually, these people are hardworking. They're just not being, being paid enough. But it's like in those times, I think it was just the, as I think um, Gaskell suggested, they were people were really afraid to see a couple who were solvent suddenly become very poor and it's the idea you wanted to drive them away because it just kind of showed well if they can become poor then so can we and it's like and if that's the case then you know being poor isn't isn't a choice it's something you can't control and so they were like accused of like witchcraft as well and oftentimes people who were accused of witchcraft were the poorest in the village and it was often just cheaper to accuse them of witchcraft and get rid of them than it was to kind of keep paying them like parish relief. Yeah. And um, so I think that's why you just had this hysteria during like the kind of, you know, civil war period, because it was just such like it was, you know, financially, it was just a disaster. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Isn't I didn't it? Know that. And that? I was yeah. about to say, is it also because they didn't have science to reason with? So nowadays yeah. we have a lot, you know, science is yeah, but... to a level that we can reason with strange things happening. Yeah. But then yes. they didn't have that. No, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, like I think definitely like just the kind of lack of like kind of understanding as well, because obviously if someone just, you know, dropped dead, it's like 
you know, in those times you'd be like, oh God, this could be witchcraft because when there's no kind of visible like explanation for it, you know, it just makes people nervous and suspicious. And Yeah, and but I th- it just feels if there are, you know, you made a modern, modern parallel there between people on benefits mm. and, and, and you know, people who might be accused of witchcraft to get get rid of them and um, stop being a burden. Yes. Um, but there's there's an element here where you know it, it we're back at a time in social media terms where there's an element of just pointing the finger. No, we still uh, know it. Yeah. yeah, no, no. I yeah. mean, it's 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 almost a, it's a current issue again. I mean, you know, we're not bobbing people in water until you know they sink and then they were innocent or anything like that at the moment. But we're actually just declaring them guilty on social media without any due process of law, which essentially is what witchcraft finding was was all about. So it does feel. Um, I mean, were those parallels in your mind when you were writing this, or was that part of the purpose of it, or was it just to to really delve into that world and 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 set a story in a in a compelling time? Um, so I feel like when I first started, it's like my kind of aim was to kind of just, as you say, delve into that world and like tell the story. But then I feel as I was going through edits, I started to kind of see modern parallels and like. Definitely in my book, you know, people who are poor are a target, but then also like, you know, the non-conformist people who don't kind of go with the crowd, they're also a target as well. And so you can definitely just see like modern parallels with that too. Yeah. Human nature doesn't change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so in terms of the um, the theatricality of, of your main character, I, I, I you know, in terms of uh, his his work as a, as a as a playwright i mean what how much research goes into into an element of that because it's it was such a post shakespeare but we're talking about i guess a lot of the 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 writing of the time was a revengeous sort of um tragedies and things like that quite quite bloodthirsty um some of the work of of the 17th century that period i would have thought yes i mean at that time especially during the civil war like dialogues were quite like popular um, so just kind of like publishing kind of, you know, dialogues. And then also you had, I think it was Elizabeth Cavendish, she kind of wrote plays. So a lot of people, quite a few people like from the upper classes would write plays, but often it would just be to kind of perform in front of like families and friends. But then I feel like I was quite inspired by John Taylor. He um, was known as the water poet. So he was from a working class background, but it's like he really kind of educated himself to like kind of learn like a bit of Latin and Greek because obviously in those times, like, when you were writing you had to make those classical illusions or like even if you didn't you had to you had to kind of understand them because so many writers would kind of draw upon them in their work but like he was very entrepreneurial so it's that thing it's like you know in the time before like Substack he would kind of get people to kind of invest in his work and then so that he could kind of continue to write it and then he would also just do these kind of like publicity stunts to kind of make money so he was one of those kind of few like working writers who was like working outside of the establishment and so it's kind of like I briefly refer to him my book but he's not a character I kind of just name dropped him but it's like (laughs) I kind of wanted to show like you know it was very hard to kind of make it you know as a writer in those times especially if you weren't from an upper class background and it's that thing if you're not really writing for the court it's that thing it's like it it can just be impossible because a lot of writers they needed like patrons um to kind of you know support them and that 
thing. It's like, it, it, you know, that kind of goes on for centuries. And so with Nicholas, it's like he's drawn into a witch hunt. And then it's, I think he has all these kind of like, you know, threats and pressures to kind of get him to comply. And like one character just says, oh, you know, my uncle, he's like a, a leading patron. I can get him to sponsor your work if you if you do what I want. So it's like, it's all these like little enticements. Mm. Wow. Wow, that's such a powerful um, sort of uh, predicament that you put him in. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, in terms of the scenes that you've you've written, I mean, uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But um, yeah. presumably, when you're dealing with witchcraft, um, how dark do you get? I mean, how 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 brutal are some of the the scenes in your in your book, or or did you manage to elude? rather than be graphic i, I don't know where Show rather um, than tell. yeah i don't know I mean, yes that's an interesting question so basically in the book there are like three i think two or three scenes where we show like the kind of you know witch hunters basically interrogating the women for like um for like you know for being witches um so it's that thing it's like it obviously like it it does go dark but it's like I try not to kind of get like too graphic because sometimes I think it's a thing you don't really need to kind of be graphic to kind of show the horror of it but then obviously it's just that thing like you know with witches you would be it was called witch and pricking where you'd be kind of prodded with a pen and they would like like a pin sorry to like look Mm. like to look for the witch's marks on your body so I have one character and it's a it's like a a woman who kind of like pricks her with a pin but we don't see it like I don't actually write that scene on the page we just have the character walking in and it's obvious that you know she's been poked because her gown is kind of like bloody in a way so it's I think it's like I do go dark and there were some people were like oh god this is a bit dark but then it's like I wanted to kind of really show like the horror of it but then I guess without kind of being kind of too kind of you know sensations like I didn't want to kind of sensationalize it or just write those bits in for the sake of it but I think it was just trying to find that kind of balance I think it can be more powerful though when because the reader's imagination knows they they almost play in their head what happens but if you don't describe it they they can still sort of feel it in their heads and I think that's more powerful than Mm. an actual description of it so now um in terms of your writing to this point I mean you were saying that you'd taken creative writing courses but hadn't um your voice hadn't emerged at that point and uh, that's quite a that's quite difficult isn't it because I've always found, um, you know, I didn't do creative writing or anything like that at university, but it was something that interested me. But I always felt that in those sort of circumstances, and this is certainly true when I was working at the BBC and you were learning new skills, people were pushing you along a little too fast. You you didn't have long enough to sort of dwell and, and develop that stuff because you were moving on to the next thing or the next thing. Yes. Text that you had to analyze for its craft and its impact on, on literature, that kind of thing. It's, uh, or indeed, I don't know where you were subjected to group crits. Group crits. <laughs> yes. So basically when I was at like university, it's like the creative writing courses, it was like a kind of like, it was the kind of group kind of like crits where it's like, you're kind of workshopping ideas. And I think it's just that thing like on one level, it's like, I was just always terrified of having my work kind of being read out. But then it's also just that thing. It's like, you're workshopping an idea so it's the idea it's like you get people's feedback and then you work on it and then you get people to read it again and then I always kind of felt like I'm I'm not actually 
I would have a good idea, but then it's that thing, even with people's feedback, which was great, and they learned from it, I wasn't actually committed to the story. I wanted to kind of move on, but it's that thing, it's like you have to commit to it. So it's like you're working on a story that you're not really passionate about. Mm. And so I feel like for me, that was like a huge thing that I kind of just struggled with. And I feel like in a way it's like I did kind of feel rushed because it's that pressure to kind of like come up with an idea and keep working on it, even if you don't actually want to and it's like I just remembered in one kind of course I did like one person was working on a book but then she realized it wasn't working for her so she decided to work on another one which was like you know much more in keeping with her voice and I was like I really admired her for that because Mm. it takes a lot of courage to be like this isn't working for me I don't want to keep blogging a dead horse I'm going to work on this one even though it's like I'm having to start from the beginning and I feel like with me, like, you know, writing, it's like you just sometimes you have to kind of just be like, you know, courageous, even if it is kind of scary to just kind of throw the stuff away and go back to the drawing board. Well, absolutely. You can't can't rush creativity, can you? And you can't. I think there's so much in books that say this is how you write a book or this is what you need to do. And this is what you need in your book. But I think it's so difficult to adopt all that. Well, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, you can over over input. Over, yeah, you can put too much in in the system, and you know, eventually, I mean, everyone's got their creative filter, haven't they? Where you know, gradually, the things that are really important to you and the skills and the the techniques and things that you might pick up from somewhere else become relevant. But at the time you're being uploaded with all this stuff, it's very hard to sift through it and and have that. Yeah. And, and have that courage because it's it just it comes at you so fast i often think you know i know they give medics what six years to become a doctor and <laughs> seven years to be a vet it wouldn't be after you know for, for writers it's just seven year yeah degree. you know yeah. one term one term on one term off go off and read write and come back <laughs> no you go and sit in cafes in paris for a yeah term. yeah <laughs> i don't know but you know, maybe that's that's but you know also writers the great writers will all say you know probably think find my voice until book six but um it feels from how we when we're discussing the revels that you've done that you've you, you know lockdown gave you the space mm. you've achieved it you've got you know you've secured the agent you've got the book deal uh you've got a supportive publisher you've worked with an editor you've got a great cover designer the support team is there now yes yes definitely and i feel like that was one of like even when I was just going through edits with my agent, it was that thing, it was like, it was just such a relief to just have someone in my corner to kind of bounce ideas off and, you know, kind of reassure me when it's like, you know, I felt like, oh my God, I can't make this work. And then, you know, my agent is like gently guiding me, like, you know, answering me questions. So it's like, I can come up with solutions as well. And like, I have repeated that experience with my editor as well and it's like so it was just really amazing because you don't feel alone and it's like it's nice to have people in your kind of corner cheering you on even though you know you'll have those days where you're like oh god I'm, I'm terrible I can't write and then they'll kind of be like calm down Stacey you can like you just <laughs> you just need to relax <laughs> well you said Stacey at the beginning that you know you are much more relaxed now that the first book's out and you know you've achieved those goals those lifetime goals of being a published author um has that helped your creativity going forward i mean are you feeling you know or does the imposter syndrome or any of the other things that creep back in 
Um, I feel like sometimes the doubts, because at the moment I'm working on book two, so it's that thing, it's like I'm kind of like rushing or like, you know, working out the pace to basically finish it. So I think it's just that thing, it's like, obviously like I've, I've written one book and I can write another but then I guess the doubt is like you know I wrote that first book during lockdown so it's like and the circumstances aren't the same and it's like I have even less time so it is a thing I struggle with and I know like you know a lot of like authors kind of struggle with their second book because it's that thing when your first book is published published it's like you know the whole experience is is new and it's like I feel like for me it's like I've kind of struggled in kind of, you know, finding a balance and managing my time because I write around and work as well. But then I feel like in some ways it's like I put pressure on myself, but then I also just realised like when I was going through the edits for The Rebels, it's like it. I took my time because the thing is, it's like if I had finished it, if I like sped through the edits, it's like, you know, I would have like, the edits would have been done but it's like big it wouldn't be the story it is now and I wouldn't have been happy with it because you know you're just rushing to finish it and then I just think even with book two it's that thing it's like you know I could have completed earlier but like as I'm doing like more research I'm finding out new things so it's like it wouldn't be the story that you know I actually want to tell and that I'd be happy to kind of you know go through edits with and like when it's published be like oh yes I'm I'm really proud of this book even though it's I think it's it's not the story and I feel like for me like I think I just have that determination to just keep writing to the best of my kind of you know abilities but like making sure that I have the time to like write the stories that I want to write and then you know that hopefully my editor and agent will like as well yeah fingers crossed well I mean I'm always fascinated by the editing process what was was there one thing that stood out to you that you'd learned from that process that that is informing your work now oh god I feel like basically just asking questions when you're not sure because I have like a deaf scene like a kind of a deaf scene in my book and it's like my editor kept asking um she in her when she was giving me her edits like we did three rounds of edits and on the first two times she just said oh could you include a speech in this moment and I was kind of like I just thought oh maybe this is a mistake on her part because there is a speech and the second time she said it I realized oh I refer to my character speaking but he doesn't like we don't actually see the words and it's like I think it just showed me like if if there's anything you're confused about just just answer now um because it's rather than because I think it was just that fear of like just looking kind of you know silly and it's like so I kind of like gone over that and I feel like in terms of the edits it's like if you need more time you know kind of you know ask for it as well and then I'm in the debut group and I remember one author just saying that when she like sends in her edits she'll usually kind of include her own editing letter where it's like she'll kind of list she'll kind of list bits that she's unsure about Mm. um so it's kind of like the editor kind of even as they're doing their edits they know kind of what to look or to be like oh okay they're unsure about this let me give her like my opinion and so when I was going through edits like I would kind of do that as well just to be like oh I've made this change but like let me know what you think like if you think this works so I think it's that thing it's like just kind of realizing the process is like collaborative and that you're a team like the editor wants the book to be the best it can be so your aims are like aligned so just really yeah working together on it. That's an interesting point isn't it because I think people fear the editing process and they also fear the editor. (laughs) yeah because they think they're this all-knowing being and because I do editing I I edit non-fiction mostly but 
And I ask lots of questions, even if they seem obvious, because sometimes I want the author to sort of just confirm what I think they're meaning or, you know, things like that. And Yeah. But you, you do, you want it to be a collaboration and you, you don't, you know, you don't want to be <laughs> feared. Yeah, because I just remembered, like, the first time my, like, um, editor Katie Sweeman sent me her edits, it's that thing, it's like, the edits, the edits, it was so, like, it was just so, like, you know, in-depth and concise, but I feel like, I just remembered when we had lunch later, she just said, oh, God, I'm always nervous sending it off, because it's like, you don't know if people are going to be really precious about it, and I feel like with me, it's like, I'd rather just have, like, you know, all the bad, rather than just someone trying to sugarcoat it, because it's that thing, it's like, if someone's trying to sugarcoat their feedback, what could be three rounds of edits turns into six rounds of edits because you're kind of too scared to be like, okay, this is what needs changing. So I feel like with my editor, we were able to kind of build up that trust level, you know, very quickly and just really work well together. But then I feel like it helps, like obviously the story, like, you know, it's, it's you know, personal and I'm, I'm passionate about it, but maybe it's different when you're kind of writing about a subject that's really kind of close to your heart, where it's like you can't really kind of separate yourself from it but like I feel like I've always been quite good at taking feedback although there is that kind of blind panic when you're opening up that editing document <laughs> and you're just fearful that the editor's going to be like oh well this is terrible <laughs> but like well, a good, a good editor won't say that but no, yeah, you're right, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Like, you might want to rethink yeah. the way you phrase yeah. this or yeah. you might oh, yeah. rethink <laughs> Yeah, oh, no, that's it's it's been a brilliant interview, um, Stacey. Just to to satisfy my own curiosity, so you know, you work, you're writing alongside the day job. What is the day job? Yeah, um, so I'm a civil servant. Right. So yeah, yeah. So HMRC. Yeah. Oh, right. in, um, yeah. You're not the tax yeah. lady, are you? <laughs> oh God, no, no. I just work in like the press office. Oh, great. okay. <laughs> yeah. Mind you, that's not an easy gig. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's. I mean. Yeah. Um, especially with the Telegraph on your case at the moment, they seem to be bashing the HMRC. And every time I open the, the paper, well, that's the Telegraph, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. I know why yeah. are you reading. <laughs> well, you might well ask. Well, that's that's fascinating. Uh, right, we're getting to that point now, um, where where things turn really dark. This is the, okay. <laughs> it is the podcast version of Vincent Price prodding Price? you I... with pins. Oh uh, yeah, gosh. I thought you were in the it, present time. This is this is this yeah. is which find a general questioning. Um, okay, <laughs> here we go. Rebecca's random question. Okay, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either swim underwater for as long as you want, or you can fly in the sky. What do you choose and why? Ooh. Oh, good. Ooh. Okay, if I can't do both, I feel like I would want to fly in the sky because I can pretend that I'm like super girl or something. Yeah. You, yeah, you could rescue people and cats and things, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 with you there, Stacey. There's no way I'm going in the water. I but... can't bear swimming. I so you... see, I get terrified. Yeah, I... You have the if you have this ability, you're not terrified. You can breathe underwater, you can swim. I'd still be terrified. No, you wouldn't. I watch I watch shark documentaries. <laughs> I'd be terrified. Maybe like you need to watch um Aquaman because it's that whole thing. It's like deep under the ocean. There is like this whole like you know other city. So mm. true, yeah, true. Yes, that's. I was hoping that would be. But no, no. I took, I took, but... I took yeah. Rebecca's two of Rebecca's sons to watch the Meg, um, this summer. Oh, so yeah, about megalodons swimming yeah. around the place. So oh, I'm gosh. not. I'm, I'm in the air. I'm not going in the water. Yeah, I've I'm, seen. I'm like... going to go and explore underwater cities and okay. worlds. And so. 
I'll, I'll wave at you from the wall. Well, another <laughs> another astonishing piece of random questioning from you, Rebecca. I thought of it when I was watching the butterfly before the cat got it. <laughs> Going to give it a good burial. But Stacey, look, it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, if people want to find out more about your work and about you, where where, where should they go? Um, so I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Stacey Thomas Writes and then Twitter at Stacey B underscore Thomas. Fantastic. Well, look, we yeah. wish you every success with continued success with The Revels and with your next book. Um, we'd love to have you back on the show when that comes out. Oh, my God. Yes, I'd love to be back as well. And like, good luck with your book as well. Like, I always love like the second. Why don't you race? So. Well, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, I I, I finally get my. I'm it... gonna. I know who my money's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations! You beat me to it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, he's been writing this for a little while, shall we say? A few oh. years. Yeah. But it will get there. You you you've cramped it up a bit now. Oh, big you, time. So yeah. It'll yeah. get there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and um, really, uh, you know, a fantastic interview. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you so much for your time. Bye. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things that you consider when you're um, in the situation I was this week is all the things you'll miss out on. <laughs> uh, and that's an, including interviewing great authors like Stacey. It was a brilliant interview, so we thank her very much. And reading great books, which I look forward to reading The Revels when I get round to it. Well, yes. <laughs> and my birthday, too. I don't want you to miss my birthday. No. Or your not. or your next birthday, or the birthday. Well, it, you know, as we, or indeed our interview with our next guest next week, who is? So we've got two guests next week. Oh, right, okay. Um, they're sisters, and they've written a oh. book together. And they, uh, I only know the name of one sister, and that, she's called Neat Nielsen. Right, okay. And they're bloody Scotland at the moment. Oh. Um, so they were quite excited that they were going to talk to us after bloody Scotland. Okay. They self-published their book. Um, okay. So it'd be interesting to see. Uh, first of all, how that process has gone. Because when I spoke to them, I think they were just on the point of publishing. Mm. Um, what they thought of, of their first sort of major crime festival and, and what's it wow. like writing as a, a sister sister duo? You know, we've wow. had yeah. couples um, on the podcast before, haven't we? But we haven't had, I don't think we've siblings. had authors who are related in that closely. I don't no. think I'd want to write a book of one of my siblings. We'd fall out for sure. <laughs> I dare say. Well, I could, I could imagine writing a book with mine, but um, yeah, interesting. Well, look, we'll look forward to that. Um, so, yeah, let's just talk about things to look forward to. Well, uh, the day before this podcast goes out, you've got a busy day taking my son James to Cardiff University and all of that. And, you know, the big car, fill it up, stick some beers in it, some food and wish him on on his way yeah it's so um, a big day i'm gonna come with you as well yeah hopefully um then on uh wednesday i got a free ticket to the uh, independent publishing guild's autumn conference and i've looked at the um agenda for anything, this, right? anything anything that you've I think I'm going to learn a lot. So this is also making me feel very optimistic for Hobeck. There are some really good talks on and it's packed from 9am till 7pm it's it's a whole day with obviously a break for lunch when and coffee. When do you come home? Uh, I, uh, my train is. Oh, I'm not sure. Quite late then. Quite half ten, I think. So oh, I'm I'm going to be really tired. I've got to feed the kids and the cat. <laughs> yes, everything. You've got to do everything on that oh, day. You geez. did promise. 
but it's a free ticket so i'm so grateful that someone i work with uh she bought three three tickets and got one for free and she just said would you like it and i said yeah so because being honest, we couldn't have afforded to no, go as no Hobeck. No way we'd have gone. Because they're in the hundreds. The tickets are in the hundreds. So I am so grateful and I'm going to make the most. I'm going to go to everything I can on that day and make the well, most of the opportunity. You know, the, the energy and the in- input and the insight you'll get from it will be massive. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. And the connections, because I, I already know a lot of people are going to be there. But there are other people that yeah. could I could potentially work with or you could potentially work with or Hobeck yeah, could no, potentially no, work with. This, this is the nature of it. And, you know... <sighs> You never know what's around the corner. Um, but <laughs> I didn't feel like that on Thursday, did no. I? No. And, I'm, and you know, I'm glad that we're here and I'm glad that I we've got the week ahead of us. And Yeah. I, look, I mean, you know, it's <sighs> I'm taking each day as it comes. I'm sort of focused on getting James to university and that's been actually a very valuable, good focus to have. We'll think about dinner first. Yeah, also planning that. But oh, we should say you're going to be making your own kimchi this afternoon for the first time I am time making ever. kimchi, yeah. So if you want a pot of kimchi, <laughs> perhaps we should give away a pot of kimchi. Do you think? <laughs> I don't want to kill people. <laughs> oh, Maybe you know, in the newsletter tomorrow we'll have a prize. You know, I might, I might well, well have dabbled with killing myself, but not, not killing other people. I'm not, not like that. No, I've got an idea. We're going to make a label, Hobbit Kimchi, and we're going to give away a pot in tomorrow's newsletter god poor, think... poor souls <laughs> well yes okay i've got the chinese leaf cabbage and all the other ingredients i need i'll just crack on with it really. well you are, you do now i've promised that <laughs> oh thanks for that talking uh, of expectations yeah there you go right okay well look this is going to be um either an episode that people uh i get a feeling that some will share it and some will Oh, just turn the back on it. No, but, no, no, don't say that. But look, I think it will be well received. I hope so. Anyway, look, it's been um, it's been difficult, but at the same time, I think a valuable experience and actually bizarre that we should use a podcast really to discuss some of these things. Really, it's not. It's not bizarre. It is perfectly normal, and it needs to be done more. There's too much uh, hush hush about mental health. There really is, and yeah. especially male mental health. True enough, and um, and we've got to stop that. Yes, yes, you're right, and 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 uh, I think I shall be uh, trying to find the was it Andy's Man's Club or whatever. It's yeah, called? so um, Tony uh, Millington uh, is a, a independent. No, he's not independently published, is he? I think he think he's got a publisher um, based in London, and he um, is one of the sort of not. Is he one of the founding members of this group? Or well, no, he's he's a. Yeah, he's well, he's a local. He's a significant player in the Peterborough branch yeah, around his man right. clubs, and they're all over the country now to help people who've suffered from mental health issues and blokes. And and I've just I've just thought something. Maybe mm. we this this should be our charity for the Christmas anthology. Yeah, yeah, it should be. Um, but I shall be reaching out to them this week. Yeah, you know it. I think I just needed to get a lot of things off my chest, and uh, I really feel that there's a gradual way forward. So, I, to all the people who who um, intervened, whether it be family, being yourself, or you know, external forces, <laughs> um, I'm enormously grateful. I'm humbled, and um, I'm, I'm great. Uh, you know, thankful. 
And I'm glad I'm still here presenting this podcast. I'm so proud. am I. I wouldn't want to do it on my own. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. <laughs> and indeed, um, I'm very grateful, and we are both, uh, to those of you who listen to us and interact with us and react to the Leap newsletters and everything that we do at Hoback. And indeed, of course, the author team and uh, the other people who make it all possible. So um, we fight on. I fight on. And um, I think this is a point where we should draw it to a close yeah so you need to say that thing where i say that thing okay first of all let's remind you where the website is www.hobeck.net archpub.net for our publishing services arm and uh also um check out back episodes of this podcast there is an absolute treasure trove of brilliant information and brilliant people uh that we've spoken to over 139 episodes but uh, for this episode, that's it. My name's been Adrian Hobart. My name's Rebecca Collins. And we wish you a wonderful and... Creative. ...week. Bye-bye, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.